Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event details on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you first heard the word guilty, you thought what? Gratitude, um, humility, followed by a certain sense of, I'll say, satisfaction. Tonight... The prosecutors in the George Floyd murder trial tell us about the defendant, the jury we never saw, and the meaning of justice. You could have charged him with a hate crime under Minnesota law, and you chose not to. They were central to the violent January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. We are in the main dome right now. We are rocking it. But who are the Oath Keepers? I think what makes the Oath Keepers unique and challenging beyond the fact that they're a formal group with chapters all over the country is that a large percentage have tactical training and operational experience in either the military or law enforcement. Overran the Capitol. We're in the Capitol, bro. When we first met Shohei Otani, he was the most captivating player in baseball who had yet to take his first swing or for that matter, his first pitch, in a major league game. A prodigious hitter and fearsome pitcher from Japan, Otani is now making a run for MVP in the majors. Not since Babe Ruth has the sport seen anything like him. Watch this. Batting leadoff, Otani hit a home run on the first pitch of the game. Then he threw eight shutout innings, striking out 10 batters with a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. That's a comic book character. Nobody does that. Who does that? I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. Sound the gifting panic alarm. 
you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. Friday, Derek Chauvin is scheduled to be sentenced for the murder of George Floyd. The former Minneapolis police officer has been in jail since his conviction in April. It was shortly after the verdict that we first brought you our interview with the prosecution team, including lead prosecutor, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. When you first heard the word guilty, you thought what? Gratitude, um, humility, followed by a certain sense of, I'll say, satisfaction. It's what we were aiming for the whole time. I spent 16 years as a criminal defense lawyer, so I will admit I felt a little bad for the defendant. I think he deserved to be convicted, but he's a human being. Somehow, I did not expect to hear from you a note of compassion for Derek Chauvin. I'm not in any way wavering from my responsibility, but I hope we never forget that people who are defendants in our criminal justice system that they're, they're, they're human beings, they're people. I mean, George Floyd was a human being. And so I'm not going to ever forget that everybody in this process is a person. Was there ever a time that you thought you could lose this case? I was never convinced we were going to win this case until we heard the verdicts of guilty. I remember what happened in the Rodney King case when I was a pretty young man, a young lawyer. And I remember how devastated I felt when I heard that the jury acquitted those officers. Whenever an officer is charged with an offense, particularly when the, the victim is a, is a person of color, it's just rare that there's any, any accountability. And so there was every moment of this case, I thought, what are we missing? What haven't we done? 57-year-old Keith Ellison represented Minneapolis in Congress. He became attorney general in 2019. In the Chauvin case, the governor passed over the local county attorney in favor of Ellison to give the prosecution independence. Ellison's team of 14 attorneys worked 11 months to explain nine minutes and 29 seconds. We never thought we could play the video and sit down. We always knew we had to put on a full case and act as if we didn't have a video. We made sure that the witnesses could carry it. Officer Chauvin. There were 45 witnesses over three weeks, including the Minneapolis chief of police. It is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. And a leading authority on the complexities 
of a simple breath. That's the moment the life goes out of his body. Which witness sealed this case for you? I think it was Mr. McMillan. You swear or affirm the penalty of perjury? 61-year-old guy, didn't know George Floyd, and he came in there and he cried on the witness stand. Oh my Charles McMillan was among those witnesses who could plainly see the humanity that never seemed to register in the eyes of Derek Chauvin. As you looked on the faces of the 12 jurors during the more difficult eyewitness testimony, what did you see in their faces? Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slisher presented the case. I saw a kind of empathy uh, in their faces that, that they could feel what the witnesses felt. Uh, they could feel the, the anguish. Uh, they could feel the pain. Uh, they saw the tears. During the trial, the dozen jurors were anonymous, socially distanced, and were never seen on camera. They were bright, uh, and they were taking their responsibilities very seriously. And you could see that throughout the entire trial. They were leaned forward, um, engaged. Taking notes, taking lots of notes. Furious, yeah, furiously taking notes. Several jurors had advanced degrees. One was a registered nurse. They were overwhelmingly under the age of 40, uh, which was unique. Half were white, half people of color. Two, what I would call traditional African-Americans, you know, people like me, there were two African immigrants. There were uh, two um, folks who were uh, mixed race, who had, uh, I think, an African descendant parent and a white parent. And then the, the, the white jurors were very diverse, too. You know, some of them were working class. Others were very highly educated folks. Use your common sense. The identity of the jurors is one of two mysteries of the trial. The other is the motive for the murder. Was this a hate crime? I wouldn't call it that. Because hate crimes are crimes where there's an explicit motive and, uh, of bias. We don't have any evidence that Derek Chauvin factored in uh, George Floyd's race as he did what he did. You could have charged him with a hate crime under Minnesota law, yeah. and you chose not to. Could have, um, but we only charged those crimes that we had evidence to, that we could put in front of a jury to prove. If we'd have had a witness that told us that Derek Chauvin made a racial reference, we might have charged him with a hate crime. But I would have needed a witness to say that on the stand. We didn't have it, so we didn't do it. The whole world sees this as a white officer killing a black man because he is black. And you're telling me that there's no evidence to support that. In our society, there is a social norm that killing certain kinds of people is more tolerable than other kinds of people. In order for us to stop and pay serious attention to this case and be outraged by it, it's not necessary that Derek Chauvin had specific racial in intent uh, to harm George Floyd. The fact is, we know that through housing patterns, through employment, through wealth, through a whole range of other things, uh, so often people of color, black people, end up with uh, harsh treatment from law enforcement um, and other folks doing the exact same thing, just don't. If an officer doesn't 
throw a white neurologist in Eden Prairie, Minnesota to the ground and doesn't uh, uh, sit on top of his neck. Is he doing it because this is a fellow white brother? No, he's doing it because he thinks this is an important person and if I treat them badly, uh, somebody's gonna ask me about this. This person probably has lawyers, they probably knows the governor, he probably knows, he has connections, I can look at the way he's dressed and the way he talks that he's probably quote unquote somebody. And so that's really what it's about. Why would this officer assault George Floyd? Well, that's a question we've spent a lot of time asking ourselves. And uh, all we could come up with is what we could divine from his body language and his demeanor. And what we saw is that the crowd was demanding that he get up and that he was staring right back at them defiantly. You don't tell me what to do. I do what I want to do. You people have no control over me. I'm going to show you. And what he showed them, he showed to 13 video cameras. Could you have one conviction without the bystander video? I don't know. If it was just the witness's statements, I have to say to you that it was, I think it was an indispensable piece of this case. The first public statement that the Minneapolis Police Department made hours after Mr. Floyd was killed right. was that the police had been involved and someone had died of a medical emergency. Do you think we ever would have known the truth without the video? You know, I have real doubts of, that we ever would. Why would Derek Chauvin commit murder or even assault if he knew he was being recorded? I think that um, if he looks at history, he has every reason to believe that he would never be held accountable. There had never been anyone in Minnesota, any police officer convicted of second-degree murder in the history of our state. So this was um, precedent-setting in that way. So history was on his side. Does George Floyd bear any responsibility, in your view, for what happened that day? No, he doesn't. Take a seat. I'm gonna die, man. You need to take a seat right you know, now. If he'd gotten in the car, he'd be alive today. The fact is, is that police officers are paid and trained to deal with people who are having problems. And if they're allowed to use deadly force on people who are just having a bad day, then, then we're gonna be in a very, very lethal situation. We need officers who have the judgment and the ability to discern what somebody is going through so that people survive these encounters. George Floyd was not armed. He never threatened a soul. He never struck out on, against anybody. He did everything the officer said, except he had claustrophobia and anxiety and couldn't bring himself to get in that car. How could Chauvin justify being on him three minutes after he had no pulse? How can he justify not rendering CPR? How can he justify not heeding George Floyd's 27 requests to be able to breathe? I can't breathe, he said 27 times. How can he just ignore that? So I'm hard pressed to find how George Floyd uh, bears responsibility for what happened here. And if you look at the totality of the circumstances. Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slisher presented the closing arguments, but they're not career prosecutors. 
They were recruited by the attorney general from big law firms because of their talent. Both volunteered to work this case for free. It meant a lot to me personally. I mean, I, I have uh, had my own experiences of, uh, of being uh, stopped uh, by the police for no reason, being harassed for no reason. And I wanted to do my part just as a citizen to say uh, that the rule of law matters. What does this verdict change? Does it change anything? Well, we won't know, right? We're in the middle of history right now. And so that's yet to be seen. But the rest of it is really up to the world, whether it changes and what it changes, to what extent. We're in the middle of this story. I don't think there, there are any inevitabilities in it because we don't make progress on the wheels of inevitability. In fact, I think progress rolls like a brick. And, uh, and so each one has to be flipped each time. So when people talk about inflection points and so on, um, I'm not really a subscriber to inflection points. So there's no reason to believe that things are easier going forward than they were to get here. And I think we have to make a consistent effort every day to protect the vulnerable and then to work to reform ourselves, which if we don't do, there won't be any lasting change anyway if each person doesn't work to make the change. Three other former officers will go on trial together next year. 45-year-old Derek Chauvin is scheduled to be sentenced by the judge this week. George Floyd's family can make a statement at that hearing, and so could Chauvin if he chooses. He faces a maximum of 40 years. A maximum sentence would send what kind of message? I think it is important for the court to not go light or heavy. I don't know if it's right for a judge to send a message through a sentence, because the sentence should be tailored to the offense, tailored to the circumstances of the case. Look, the state never wanted revenge against Derek Chauvin. We just wanted accountability. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Nearly 500 people have now been charged in one of the most complex investigations the Department of Justice has ever faced, the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The FBI has called it an act of domestic terrorism, and one group has grabbed investigators' attention for their role, the Oath Keepers. The FBI describes them as an anti-government militia movement, among them current and former military and law enforcement. Their name is a reference to the oath they took to defend the U.S. Constitution. But as we first reported this past April, unlike most other militia groups, the Oath Keepers haven't been hiding. They've been armed and in plain sight, broadcasting plans to mobilize. If you were looking for a roadmap to January 6th... They're storming the 
The Capitol now. Oh my God! All you had to do was listen. Okay, guys, we're on open channel here now. These are the voices of far-right extremists communicating with each other in real time from homes across America and on the ground in Washington. Godspeed and fair winds to us. As some of them made their way to the Capitol. Trump's been trying to drain the swamp with a straw. We just brought a shop back. Stop the steal. They were talking on a phone and computer app called Zello. It's unencrypted, like a walkie-talkie, and has an international user base of around 150 million. It's popular with truckers, disaster relief groups, activists, and extremists. Just be safe, be alert, and stay in groups. Anyone can listen to Zello, and Michael Lowinger did. Lowinger, a WNYC radio reporter, started working with the online extremist research group Militia Watch to understand how militia groups like to use Zello to recruit and communicate. Leading up to January 6th, we uncovered examples of militias saying things like revolution or bust, that they were using Zello to plan their travel to Washington, D.C., um, that they were going to have separate channels for people gathering intel and separate channels for boots on the ground. And they did. On January 6, Michael Lowinger found an open Stop the Steal conversation going on among 100 people on Zello and started recording. It wasn't until a couple days later that I started to realize how much planning must have gone into this event. And that's when I heard this mysterious woman narrating her march to the Capitol and eventually inside. We have a good group. We got about 30, 40 of us. We're sticking together and sticking to the plan. That mysterious woman is Jessica Watkins, a 38-year-old Army veteran. She's the leader of a self-described Ohio militia group and member of the Oath Keepers. We're moving on to Capitol now. I'll give you a boots-on-the-ground update here in a few. That's Watkins with the goggles, and here with nine other Oath Keepers in battle gear. They move in a stacked military formation, methodically working through the crowd, up the Capitol steps, towards the doors, just as the Capitol doors are breached. On Zello, others cheer her on. You are executing citizens' arrests. As she offers a play-by-play. We are in the main dome right now. We are rocking it. They're throwing grenades. They're freaking shooting people with paintballs, but we're in here. Get it, Jess. Do your sh-. This is what we lived up for. Everything we trained for. Overran the Capitol. We're in the Capitol, bro. For weeks, extremist watchdogs like the Anti-Defamation League, national news outlets, and journalists like Michael Lowinger had been warning of possible violence on the 6th. If they had been paying attention to the whole network of far-right groups online that were extremely vocal and very public about what they wanted to happen. I don't believe we would have seen um, so many people break into the Capitol. Police are doing nothing. They're not even trying to stop us at this point. Members told us at least 40 Oath Keepers were at the January 6th rally, with some, seen here, providing security to Trump associate Roger Stone. 18 people associated with the Oath Keepers have been charged with federal crimes, including Jess Watkins, who has pled not guilty. The Zello recordings are helping prosecutors make their case. 
Zello has since deleted 2,000 of these extremist channels. That is just a small demonstration of capability that luckily didn't turn into a more lethal threat. Javed Ali is a former NSC senior director and was a counterterrorism official at the FBI under the Trump administration. I think what makes the Oath Keepers um, unique and, and challenging beyond the fact that they're a formal group with chapters all over the country is that a large percentage have tactical training and operational experience in either the military or law enforcement that at least gives them a capability that a lot of other people in this far-right space don't have. The story of Oath Keepers is very much the story of this man. I'm Stuart Rhodes. I'm the founder of Oath Keepers. In 2009, in Lexington, Massachusetts, where the first shots were fired in the Revolutionary War, Stuart Rhodes founded the Oath Keepers in response to the election of Barack Obama. There's no expiration date on that oath. It is for life. Rhodes enlisted in the Army at 18 and was honorably discharged at 24. He went on to graduate from Yale Law School and became a constitutionalist, later warning America was on the brink of government tyranny. In 2010, he told Bill O'Reilly that it was up to current and former members of the military and police who took an oath to defend the Constitution to stop that tyranny. Commander-in-Chief Zia is the president. By our Constitution, mm -hmm. if he issues an order, are you telling people not to obey the order if they don't like it? If it's unconstitutional, yes. So each soldier makes up his mind whether the order he's given is constitutional or not? It's a heavy burden to me. But if, if you obey an unlawful order, you can also be in trouble. The group recruited thousands, opening up chapters across the country. They formed a board of directors and 10 orders to live by elevating themselves to guardians of the Republic and the Constitution, vowing to protect against mass gun confiscation and a Marxist invasion. In 2014, they took their fight to the Nevada desert. Rhodes sent armed Oath Keepers to defend the rancher Cliven Bundy, who was in a 20-year battle with the federal government about public land use. And in 2015, months after the police shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, Oath Keepers arrived with AR-15-style weapons, saying they were there to protect businesses. But in 2016, the Oath Keepers believed they finally had an ally in the White House. We will build a great wall along the southern border. When President Trump warned of an invasion of undocumented migrants, the Oath Keepers called on members to patrol the border. And this fall, when President Trump warned of election fraud, founder Stuart Rhodes appeared on InfoWars, conspiracist Alex Jones's talk show, setting the stage for what was to come on January 6th. We have men already stationed outside D.C. as a nuclear option in case they attempt to remove the president illegally. We will step in and stop it. It's either President Trump is encouraged and, and bolstered and strengthened to do what he must do, or we wind up in a, in a bloody fight. We all know that. The fight's coming. But for some Oath Keepers, the rhetoric was too much. Former board members told us Rhodes adopted a more violent, malicious-style ideology, and it was tearing apart the group. Chapters in Virginia and North Carolina broke ties with National well before the six, citing a departure from the original mission. Others distanced themselves after the insurrection. Please rise for the invocation. Including the country's largest chapter in Arizona, where Jim Arroyo is vice president. While Arroyo doesn't think the election was legitimate, 
He doesn't think anyone should have stormed the Capitol. I want to congratulate Stuart Rhodes and his 10 militia buddies for winning first place in the ultimate dumbass contest, because that's what it was. That goes against everything we've ever taught, everything we believe in. It was pre-planned. It was pre-staged. Ten guys go and do something stupid, and suddenly we're the devil. In September, some Arizona members showed up armed at a Black Lives Matter protest in Prescott. Jim Arroyo told us law enforcement coordinated with him to help keep the peace. The local sheriff's department told us they didn't ask for their help. The critics of your presence there say, like, these are just a bunch of guys who are wannabes and they can't wait to get dressed up and play the role. Our guys are very experienced. We have active duty law enforcement in our organization that are helping to train us. We can blend in with our law enforcement. In fact, in a lot of cases, our training is much more advanced because of our military backgrounds. There's nothing I love more than my AR-15 and my chainsaw, and I don't know which one I like more. Jim Arroyo invited us to a meeting to see for ourselves. The crowd, mostly retirees, meet twice a month. How warm that is? To talk about how to survive disasters like forest fires. These things are great. Attacks on the power grid and civil war. So that's why we talk about civil unrest, civil war. It's not a joke. This can happen, and we need to be ready for it. Yesterday, Jim said, do you think we're in a civil war? And everybody nodded their heads and said yes. Kathy York, Gary Harworth, and Mike Rice are members. Do you all think that we are in the middle of a civil war? I think that we are. You've got good versus evil right now going on in our country. Who do you view as evil? Anybody that doesn't support our Constitution and follow it. They, they're trying to change it. This country is divided right down the middle. And you're on one side or the other. People have to realize that when things go crazy, things get a little chaos around you, you have to be able to take care of yourself, defend yourself, protect your family, those you love. That's part of the Constitution. So on January 6th, when you see, you know, these people wearing that same emblem storm into the Capitol, what was your reaction? Some of those people with those keepers could have been BLM. They could it could have been, have been a false flag as far as I'm concerned. You don't think they were Oath Keepers? Well, they, they we, don't have been. we don't know. We don't we know. We weren't there. And they're stupid people. It's stupid. We don't do that. That's not Oath Keepers. How are you going to take an oath to defend the Constitution and then try to disturb yeah. a, a, a session of Congress during what's supposed to be one of our most precious political things, you know, the transfer of power? How are you going to do that? I haven't had contact with Stuart Rhodes. He refuses to talk to us. Why is that? You're the biggest Oath Keepers group. Why wouldn't you be talking we to us? We have made multiple attempts through National. And my honest opinion is if, if there's any honor left in this organization at the upper levels, they will deal with it. Photos and phone records place Stuart Rhodes on the Capitol steps on January 6, communicating with Oath Keepers before they breached the doors. But no charges have been brought against him. Rhodes declined to speak with 60 Minutes to tell his side of the story. He did appear again in March on InfoWars, this time from his car, saying he didn't order Oath Keepers to enter the Capitol, but defended the members who are now in jail and criticized those who put them there. So they are criminalizing patriotism. One Oath Keeper has pled guilty and agreed to cooperate in the ongoing investigation. 
Evidence suggests members stashed weapons at a nearby hotel as part of a quick reaction force. Evidence, a federal judge says, is among the most troubling he has seen. Sources tell us prosecutors are looking to build a case against Stuart Rhodes and possible separate charges against the national organization. Federal prosecutors are currently working on informal plea negotiations with some of the Oath Keepers who've been charged. Trials are expected to begin sometime in the fall. Later this summer, thousands of athletes will converge on Tokyo to compete in the Summer Olympics. But the most compelling story in sports right now might involve a Japanese athlete currently competing here. We speak of Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels, who uses his alloy of size, speed, and strength both in the batter's box and on the pitcher's mound. A 26-year-old pitching slugger, or slugging pitcher, Otani is not only the first major leaguer to moonlight since a guy named Babe Ruth, he's doing so to blazing effect. A solid MVP candidate this season, Otani has rightly become a fan favorite wherever he plays. He is fulfilling the promise he first showed as an intriguing, almost mystical prospect playing in the Japanese Baseball League. In 2017, when Otani was only 22, we wanted to see this phenom and phenomenon for ourselves. We traveled to Japan to meet Otani for what was his first interview with an American television network. But we first laid eyes on him in Arizona, where his team at the time had come for spring training. This sliver through the fence of a batting cage made for a fitting introduction. We found dozens of Japanese outlets angling for a slice, any slice, of Otani in action. Cameras follow him to the exclusion of every other player on the field. And so do the fans. We met supporters who traveled 5,000 miles to the desert southwest just to watch him train. Having glimpsed the Otani phenomenon on the road, we were eager to explore it on his turf. Our search to find what all the fuss was about took us here to Hokkaido, Japan's northernmost island. It's home to the national champion baseball team, the Nippon Ham Fighters. It's also home to the sport's most intriguing prospect. Shohei Otani looms large in the snowy Hokkaido town of Sapporo. If Tokyo is a fastball, Sapporo is a curveball. Japan's fifth largest city feels not unlike a laid-back ski village. But this is a baseball town. And this is the home stadium, the Sapporo Dome. It's here we sat down with Otani. We broke the ice with a question about what we'd heard was his favorite local fast food. Very important question. In-N-Out Burger, Captain Kangaroo Burger. Captain Kangaroo. Better? Towering and affable, Otani's working on his English, but felt more comfortable using a translator during our interview. I want to ask you about coming to the majors, but should we say if or should we say when? <laughs> That's a tough one. I mean, nothing is for certain, so I guess it's if. Despite that cautious response, Otani eagerly revealed which major league players he looks most forward to facing. No less than MVP hitter Bryce Harper and star pitcher Clayton Kershaw. I watch Bryce Harper, Clayton Kershaw. Pitcher and a hitter. <laughs> yeah, unlike me, Kershaw is a lefty. 
you see a little of yourself in both Kershaw and Harper? I actually do see myself. <laughs> and I actually try throwing lefty sometimes. How do you think you do against Kershaw? Just thinking about facing him makes me really happy and excited. I could just tell he's such a great pitcher through the TV screen. How would you pitch to Harper? I would have to go with my best pitch, which is the fastball. I want to see how my best pitch fares against one of the best hitters. Likely quite well. Throwing his dancing fastball, Otani strikes out batters at a higher rate than Kershaw. Unfurling his violent yet somehow elegant swing, he hits home runs at a higher rate than Harper. There are days Otani makes baseball look almost laughably easy. Consider this performance last summer. On the very first pitch of the game, Otani, batting leadoff, hit a home run. He then pitched eight shutout innings and struck out 10 batters. At six foot four, the designated hitter turned pitcher reliably brings the crowd to its feet. When he threw the fastest pitch, breaking his own record, even opponents looked on in astonishment. Last year, you threw a pitch 165 kilometers an hour, more than 102 miles an hour. How much faster can you throw than 102.5? I don't have an exact answer for that. But I'm still young. I'm still 22. I think there's more room to grow. As seasons go, 2016 will be hard to top. The Hokkaido Nippon Ham Fighters took the Japan Series. Otani was his league's MVP. About that name, the fighters are owned by Nippon Ham, makers of Japan's best-selling sausages. And while, yes, the name resists serious treatment, the team itself is widely regarded as the most innovative in the league. Manager Hideki Koryama leads the fighters, also the former team of Yu Darvish, now an ace for the Texas Rangers. Can you compare this to anything you've seen? Yeah, I like this man. No, never seen anything like it, never. What's it like having a player who's your best pitcher and also your best hitter? He's so talented. It's really tough to use him the right way, with the right balance. If you thought Moneyball, the practice of using baseball data over intuition, contorted a manager's conventional thinking, try overseeing a two-way player. Kuriyama's formula? He pitches Otani on Sundays, then bats him the rest of the week, with a day or two off before each start. Distractions are to be kept to a minimum. Same goes for praise. Shohei Otani may be the star of the team, but Kuriyama doesn't exactly coddle the guy. Last year when we won the championship, it was the first time he gave me a compliment, and he said, that was great pitching. Never complimented you before that. <laughs> Not once. He always says, you've got to get better. And Kuriyama has his reasons. I truly believe he's a lot better than where he's at right now. The crowd at the Sapporo Dome is less stingy with its praise. You don't get a lot of quiet time here, no peanuts and cracker jacks either, but plenty of the local beer. A college football-style atmosphere pervades. The caliber of play is considered one level below the major leagues in America. Top Japanese players, names like Ichiro and Matsui, aspire to compete against the very best in the U.S. 
Even amid such companies, Shohei Otani sticks out. Expat John Gibson has reported on Japanese baseball for 20 years. What's it like covering this guy? You think about a guy who throws 101 and then a guy who hits home runs, and that's a comic book character. That's not somebody you're thinking about in real life. You know, nobody does that. Who does that? We'd hope to leave the Sapporo Dome with Otani, get to know the mortal behind the comic book character. Thank you. But he politely declined our invitation. Not even a quick Captain Kangaroo burger. So we invited a couple of his teammates instead. Brandon Laird and Luis Mendoza are two of the team's gaijin, or foreign players. Laird saw action as a Yankee. Mendoza once pitched for the Rangers and the Royals. Sapporo's not a bad place to be a gaijin. How you doing? Good? Good to see you. Over dinner at their favorite spot in town, Laird told us that Otani is the most talented teammate he's ever had. This from a guy who played with Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez. Some pitchers can hit, but I mean, he actually does it in a game. Like he's in our lineup, you know, and it's impressive. Watch him hit the ball. I mean, it's like a Miguel Cabrera, you know, power, kind of power, you know. He reminds you of Cabrera? Yeah, definitely. You guys been out with him? Uh, no, I mean, he doesn't really do anything. He's just, just mellow kid, just goes back to the dorm. Yes, the biggest star in Japanese baseball, with a reported salary of roughly $2 million, apart from not owning a car, lives in these minimalist team dorms. <laughs> Otani confirmed to us that he seldom leaves the facility, not that it keeps fans from waiting for him outside. Even from a distance, plenty of observations can be made about the pitching slugger, or the slugging pitcher. He is meticulous, stopping mid-pitch to adjust his form, open to advice from his batting coaches. Even baseball tedium provides a source of enjoyment. This is someone who plays baseball but has always worked at it, too. Otani grew up in a small industrial town on Japan's mainland. His father, once an amateur player himself, coached his son's Little League teams. Shohei Otani showed promise as a hitter but drew more interest as a pitcher occasioning stealth visits from American scouts while he was still in high school. At age 18, he held a press conference to announce his major league intentions and went so far as to tell Japanese teams not to draft him. But the Nippon Ham Fighters, again known for doing things their own way, drafted him nonetheless. Every other team besides the fighters was looking at me as a pitcher. But the fighters were going to allow me to do both pitching and hitting. Honestly, I wasn't even thinking about doing both on a professional level. But they approached me in that way, and I wanted to take the chance. That's your fastball grip? Fastball. Splitter. So you have a splitter? True to their word, the fighters have cultivated Otani as a hitter as well as a pitcher. We asked him about his forebear. People have compared you to Babe Ruth. What do you think about when you hear the name Babe Ruth? He's like a mythical character to me. Because it's such a long time ago and he was God to baseball. I shouldn't be compared to him. At least not right now. But maybe someday soon. The fighters have said they'll permit Otani to negotiate with major league teams after this season. Hideki Kuriyama says the time is right. For our team, we're all for him going to the States. 
best player on the team, this amazing two-way talent, and you're okay with him going to the major leagues. Yeah, as a manager, it's going to hurt. It's tough that way. But more than that, I want him to succeed. Back in the U.S., news of Otani's imminent arrival was a hot topic at spring training, though, weary of tipping their hand, execs we approached would only talk off camera. Dave DeFreitas was a scout for the Yankees and the Indians. He watched Otani come of age in Japan. Now independent, he produces scouting reports for the website 2080 Baseball. Everybody is interested. Scouts are going over there all year this year to watch him. I think if team tells you they're not interested, they're probably lying to you. <laughs> it's, uh, you're talking about a, a young kid that's one of the best talents in the game on the planet. Otani told us he doesn't have an agent yet, but he's going to need one. His path to the majors won't exactly be straightforward. A new collective bargaining agreement caps at $6 million what teams can pay any foreign player under the age of 25, even those who ritually send balls dinging into the outfield seats. By coming before he turns 25, Otani could be leaving tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. The timing of when you come to the majors could make a big, big difference in terms of salary. Does, does that concern you? Personally, I don't care how much I get paid or how much less I get paid because of this. This may be the rare case where it's not about the money. Rather, the deal with Otani may hinge on which team will let him keep pitching and hitting. You think he's in a position now where he can say to teams, listen, if you're not going to play me both ways, I'm probably not your guy. I think he won't even talk to them if they don't. Really? I think he won't even have a meeting with them. No matter where he ends up, it's hard to root against the great Otani experiment. Here in Sapporo, where his departure will be bittersweet, they'll be cheering the loudest. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.